your Bibles, please meet me in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. And I doubled and triple checked this time. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. And could you please stand to your feet in reverence to God's holy word? Again, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. And it reads, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith not, may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day, and until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bags or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me ha has it fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two, the two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Amen. You may have your seat. It's Pastor Todd Good morning. I want to tell you first where this text for me comes out of, and then we'll dive into the text together this morning. I, I've been struggling. As you know, I, I like to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And for the last two months, the Lord has not inspired anything, which is super depressing as a pastor. Let me tell you, I, I don't like topical. I don't like uh, picking passages of Scripture. I like going uh, from verse 1 all the way to the end of the book. And so uh, this week... Monday, I was like, I know this will be the week God will give me some revelation, and it didn't happen. Uh, but he did uh, give me this passage uh, for, I believe, for us as a church this morning. So let me tell you where this comes out of for me uh, and for our church. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going on in the life of the church that can be really discouraging. Whether it's our marriages, whether it's cancer, whether it's illness, whether it's surgeries, whether it just seems like uh, over the last year, every so many days, something more comes out of uh, our, the body of our church. And we can get really discouraged. And I know for me in this season, it's a season of just pondering with the Lord. Where are you? Now, I don't know if you feel that way. Uh, that's where I am. It seems like a, a very dry desert for me in my relationship with the Lord. I'm pursuing him, I'm asking of things of him, and yet every turn it seems like another wave comes crashing down on me. And I, I think that would be true for the life of the church. So I was sitting in my quiet time this week, and I came across this passage, and it's a passage I've read, I don't know, a couple hundred times. And there's this little phrase in there that kind of jumped out, and I, I want to camp out on that three-letter phrase this morning. But now let me give you a, the context of the passage. You know the scene well. The context of the passage is here Jesus is. He's 
in the upper room with his disciples. And he's beginning to have this conversation with his disciples about what's going to happen to him and what's going to happen to them. And he's saying in here, he's got his 12 closest friends and he's about to do the Lord's Supper. He's going to institute what we would call the new covenant. He's going to say what was the Old Testament is done away with. We're going to enter in the new covenant. The old way of practice is that you would give these lambs as a slaughter for a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he says, but I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice. And then you know the story well. Then he institutes the Lord's Supper. And at the institution of the Lord's Supper, he says to Judas, who'd already betrayed him, hey, I know what you're about to do, just go ahead and go do it. And so you can see the tension in the room. You can feel the tension. Now there's this tension in the room that he says, hey, one of y'all is about to betray me. And there's this conversation that arises with the disciples about who's going to do it. And then we get to this text. There's this little phrase that's tucked away in the middle of this massive story that can get lost in what happened before this part of the story and what happens next after the story because just in a few hours, Judas is going to wander off and betray Jesus. And then uh, and in this moment, in the moments to come, these men, these mercenaries are going to come and, and totally beat Jesus half to death and then hang him on a cross. So we're in this moment of tension. And I wonder for us, church, if we're in that moment of tension. I want to see, show you what it says in that moment of tension. Here they are, they're reclining at the table. He turns and he, this is what it says in the text, he turns and he looks at the 12 disciples sitting there. But he picks out one. He says, Simon, Simon. He uses the name Simon. Remember what Jesus had called Simon, though, earlier in his life. He changed his name from Simon to Peter, which Peter means rock. And he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. What's the rock that he's going to build his church on? It's not Simon. It's the faith that is in Simon. You got to remember, you got to catch that in your notes. Write that. He says to Peter, hey, I'm going to build my church on you, but I'm going to build it on something. I'm going to build it on your faith, Peter. So why does he call him Simon rather than Peter in the text? Because I believe Jesus is about to show Simon, Peter, his humanity, his frailty. Because something is about to happen, and Jesus is going to tell Simon what's going to happen to Simon. But he's going to remind Simon of his frailty and his need for Christ. To Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might shift you like wheat. Could you imagine the panic that would have gone on in that man? Like here's Jesus, the Son of God, saying to you, hey, Satan and I had a conversation about you. And Satan is demanding that he has you. Like he's forcefully came to me, Simon Peter, and says, I want to do something with you, Simon Peter. But here's the clincher in this text. Circle this word in the text. 
he says you. But the word you is not singular in the text, it's the plural. And so what he's saying is now I've got all y'all's attention. Because Satan is demanding that he shift all of you like wheat. That same conversation has been had about you as a believer. Satan has come and he, just like in the story of Job, he's demanding Jesus that he puts us through trials and tribulations and persecution. So you are going to go through trials and persecutions and tribulations. We've been sharing about that a lot this year. Jesus himself says, if you want to be like me, you've got to do what I've done and go where I've been. Paul says, if if you want to be godly, you've got to face trials. So if you're here this morning, maybe there was a conversation about you with God and Satan, and Satan demanded to have you. Maybe, Jonathan, for you, Satan and God had this conversation, and, and he says, well, let me show you what happens when I take his back from him. Let me show you what happens when I give them Lyme disease. Let me show you what happens when they have a hip problem. Let me show you what happens when they have cancer. You see, you're going to face trials because there's a conversation that's happening in heaven and Paul's going to tell us later on in, in the New Testament that there's this war going on for us as believers. So you probably are in a war with Satan and his minions because there's something going on in you that's greater than you even know. It's really about your righteousness. So how do we face persecutions? How do we face trials? How do we face tribulations? Because there is a demand for your soul. Look what Jesus says next. He says, hey, I'm demanding something of you that you might be shifted like wheat. He's going after Simon Peter. Why would he go after Simon Peter first? Here's what one writer says about Simon Peter. It is worth noting that Peter held a position among the disciples as the first among equals. He was a Jesus' initial disciple. He's the one that he called first, the first to recognize him as Christ, the first to exhibit his faith by walking on water. If Satan could harm Peter, he could potentially harm them all. He was a significant figure in this group. And maybe that's true for you. Maybe it's true about you that you're the first among equals and if Satan can get after you, then he can get after all that comes behind you. But then there's this little phrase that I want to camp out on for us that gives us great hope this morning. He he says, That Satan wants to shift you like wheat. He wants to put you through trials, to all of you through trials. That's what it means to be shifted like wheat. 
Well, what happened is they would bring in the wheat and then they would take the, 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 the wheat and the chaff would, uh, would separate and then all the, the chaff would be blown away by the wind. And what Satan is saying is, I promise this, there is no wheat among your 12 disciples. They will all be blown away when the trials hit. And then Jesus says these three words that bring us great hope in the midst of our trials. He says, Satan has demanded of you, but then there's that sweet three-letter word, but. I love the buts of the Bible. No laughing. But, but, though this is happening, there's something else going on behind the scenes that you don't even know. Amen? Like what you see is not always what you see in God's word. And what you see in your life is not always what you see in your own life. There is always a but in your life. But what happens? What does Jesus say to Peter and the other 11 disciples? But what? I have prayed for you. He says, but what you don't know, Peter, is I've prayed for you. You see, why would Jesus pray for Peter and the other 11 and for us today? Because he knows that there is the devil that prowls around, as Peter says in chapter 5, like a roaring lion ready to devour us. So be watchful, be sober-minded, resist him, Peter goes on to say. He says, but with all that, Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm praying. He tells us Jesus himself in another discord in the upper room in John 17. He says, I pray for them. There's another text that says this, that, that there, is an ad, there, there is one who on our behalf is interceding constantly for us. You see, I think we get so fooled by the trials and tribulations that we're blinded that we still have a Savior who prays constantly for us. Like in all the prayers that you've prayed to God, there's been one that's prayed more for you. His name is Jesus. He never stops praying for you. He never stops praying for your cancer. He never stops praying for your hip. He never starts praying even the, the details of your life he prays for. He's not just simply praying for your salvation. He is so intricately involved in your life, he knows the hairs, the number of hairs on your head. He is praying for you. He is interceding for you. So we could just stop there in the text. Do you feel prayed for today? You ever gone to people and asked them to pray for you and there's that moment you're like, man, somebody's definitely praying for me. You start looking around. Well, we have that constantly with the Son of God. And here's the deal with God's prayers. They're always answered. Ours may not always be answered. But Jesus, when he prays something, I promise it happens. He goes on to say this, but 
now he's going to tell you what he prays for. So yes, he's praying for all those things, but there's something else that Jesus is praying for you in this moment during your trials and tribulations and persecution. He says this, I've prayed for you that what? Your faith may not fail. Of all the things that Jesus would pray for in that moment for Peter, why not, like, hey, I, I'm praying that you don't sin. I'm praying that you don't uh, reject me, though I know you're going to because in about two more verses I'm going to tell you you're going to deny me. I'm, I'm not praying that you don't scatter when they hang me on the cross. All the things that Jesus could have prayed for in that moment for Peter. But what does he say? He's praying for what? Their faith. How come Jesus would pray for his faith? How come Jesus is praying for our faith? It's because of this. We said it last week. Because everything in your life hinges on faith. So where is Satan going to go when he knows everything in your life hinges on one simple word? It's called faith. And what is faith? It's a gift given to you by God for your salvation. So if you do not have faith, you cannot have salvation. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to pray for you in one place, your faith, that it may not fail. Because if it fails, all of your life fails. That is the first domino of all the dominoes. So if Satan can knock that one over, he knows he can knock the rest of them over. So maybe your cancer is because of your faith. Maybe your hip is because of your faith. Maybe your back is because of your faith. And yet you have one that is praying for you nonstop. Satan will always attack our faith. He's not that clever. You know that, right? He's been doing it since the beginning of time. What did he do in the garden? He attacked their faith. Did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? Like Satan's been doing the same thing since the garden. Now he does it different ways. But he's going to do it the same way over and over and over and over again. Why? Because he knows if he gets to your faith, he can get to your relationship with God. If he gets to your relationship with God, then you're in trouble and I'm in trouble. How else would he go after our faith? What the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. And without faith is what? Impossible. Please God. Everything that you do in your life that pleases God is because of what? Your faith. So if he can get to your faith, he can get to you pleasing God. If he can get to you pleasing God, he can get to you from doing the very thing you were created to do, and that was to glorify God. The only reason you're on this planet is to glorify God or to please God. That's the only reason you're here. It's not because God was lonely. He wanted more of his own glory. He's like, I'm going to make these little humans to bring me more glory, to please me more. But I've got to give them something in order for them to do that. It's called this little thing called faith. Without this faith, without this salvation, they'll never be able to please me. Satan's always going to go after our 
And then he says this. He says, and I pray for you that your faith will not fail. Again, circle that word you in the text. See, the first you is corporate. The second you, you is singular. Jesus is not just simply praying for Powell's Chapel. He's praying for you, Jonathan, for you, Lauren. He's not out there with this collective prayer. You, you ever been in a prayer where it's a collective prayer? Like, well, who are you even praying for? Or about? Like, somebody just pray for me. Like he's calling you by name to the Father. Then I pray that your faith may not fail. So the first thing he prays for is your faith. But then he says this, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now you may be thinking, what does that mean? Highlight that in your Bible. Because here's the next thing that God is going to, Jesus is going to pray for you, not only your faith, but the other comes out of that. We see it later on in the text in verse 37. Jesus is constantly praying for your forgiveness. You, you see, it says in the text, thank God for the Bible. And thank God for the heroes of the Bible. There's only one hero that never failed in the Bible. His name was Jesus. Every other hero, their life is a train wreck. Like Peter was a train wreck. Like you might be a train wreck, but yet God can use you in your train wreck. Because he says, hey, Peter, you are going to turn away from me. He says that later on in the text. He says, hey, he's like, hey, I want to go to prison with you. I want to go to death with you. And Jesus is like, no, you really don't. That's the way Todd says it. I'm sure that's not how Jesus said it. He says, no, 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 because by the end of the evening, Peter, you're going to deny me after the crow cries three times. You see, in that moment, Jesus is already telling Peter, hey, you are going to turn away from me. But I promise this, because I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your forgiveness, you're going to turn back to me. Because the text says, when you turn back, therefore it has to say, he must have turned away at some point in order to turn back. But Jesus is even now praying for you when you turn from him that you'll turn back to him. So you will turn from him again, I promise this, you will not live a holy perfect life. There's only one that did that. His name is Jesus. But we do have a Jesus, a Savior, that's praying for your forgiveness so that you can turn back to him. So that what? You can strengthen people when you turn back to him. Think about that for a moment. Jesus knows in our trials, in our tribulation, in our persecution, we are probably going to turn away from him. Now that's sad, but that's true. How many of you in the room, and this is by show of hands, when trials have come, you've turned away from God? Like, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to figure out my own way. I'm going to get my own relief. Alcoholics call it, I want what I want, what I want, I'm going to get it at all costs. Anyone else like that in the room? I'm going to get mine. That's how I say it. And Jesus already knows that about you. He knows you're going to go get yours. And yet he knows when you go get yours, he's going to be on his face before a holy God praying for you to return to him. 
And any reason you turn back to him isn't because you came to your senses. It's because Jesus drew you back to your senses that turned you back to him. That's what happened in Luke 15. Remember the story of the prodigal son. He went out and squandered all he had. And then the verse says he came to his senses, but him coming to his senses because Jesus was praying for his return. That's what was happening with the father. And he returned. So your return isn't because you've turned. It's because Christ is praying for you to return. So he's praying for your forgiveness. He's praying that you be restored. He's praying so that the fulfillment of Scripture would be true about him. That's what it says in the text in verse 37. For what is written about me, it is the fulfillment of it. What is he talking about? He's talking about Isaiah chapter 53. I'll read those texts here. But surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. You see, Christ suffered all those things for your forgiveness. But not only that, he suffered all those things, took all those things for you on the cross. How come is what he says to Peter? So that when you turn back to me again, you will strengthen your brothers. Your greatest failures is what strengthens the church, is what he says to Peter. Remember, he's talking to Peter, who in about, 10, 10, uh, in about 50 days from this moment is going to go to Pentecost and he's going to tell them all that Jesus did for him when he turned from him. That is, the, that is the message of Pentecost in Acts. One day I'll preach through the book of Acts. But it was out of what? Peter's failure that he became powerful. Remember what Paul says. In my weakness I find strength. So church, I beg the question then. How come we don't talk more about our failures? If our failures is what bring the church strength, how come the only thing we're doing is talking about our strength and not our failures? Because it's in our failures that people can look to us, not because of anything we've done, because of what Christ has done for us and given us faith and forgiveness of all that we've done. You see, your brokenness is the power of the story. Because it's in your brokenness that reveals what happened here, that Jesus is praying for you. But we don't often live that way, do we, church? So I want you to ask yourself this one question this morning. Is it true for you that you're facing trials and persecution and tribulation this morning? Do you feel discouraged in all that? Do you feel abandoned by God in any of that? But here's the truth upon that truth. You have Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father, who is praying for your faith that it may not fail. But when it does fail, will you use the failings to reveal to others what God is doing for you and praying for you? I promise this church, our failure 
is our greatest strength. Our failures are our greatest strength. And so I implore you, church, let's talk more about our failures to one another. I am a hot mess. I know I can put on a nice suit and I don't look like that, but I promise if you got into my internal world, you'd be like, man, that dude is a mess. I'm a mess oftentimes because I don't often believe that Christ is praying for me. And when I say I'm an awful mess, I'm not saying I'm going around sinning all the time. I'm just saying where my doubt comes in, where my disbelief comes in. When my, my failing to trust in the Lord comes in, that's what I mean when I, I'm in a hot mess. Yes, I sin as well. But God, this week in this text, brought me on my knees and was just saying to me over and over again, Todd, just remember I'm praying for you. And it's not like we here at the church, when we say we pray for someone, we actually turn around and don't. I'm just saying. Like when he says he's praying for us, I promise you right now, he is at the right hand of the Father praying for your back, praying for your cancer, praying for your marriage, praying for your faith, praying for your loneliness, praying for your hurt. All the things that are going on internally, a living God is praying to God the Father on our behalf. Would that be true about us? So I want to ask this last question. Are you a hot mess? If you are, know that you have a God that is praying for you. And you have a church that will welcome you. So that when you come back, you will have a story to share with the world and with the church about all that God is doing. Again, the reason I'm here in this pulpit is because 15 years ago, I was a hot mess. And yet I had a Savior that was praying for me in the midst of my sin, that I'd return to him. And I returned to him. But I can't tell you how often i got to share my story, but i got to share the brokenness that led me to my repentance, to my confession, to lead me to this place. And God be the glory. Why? Because Christ was praying for me. Christ is praying for you this morning. May we find encouragement in that. Let us pray.